Well, I want to ask a question before we get to our text this morning. I want to ask you guys a question. If we were to make a list of the top ten Christmas villains of all time, who would be on your list? And who would be the worst? All right, I'll, I'll, we can have audience participation for a minute. Let me, let me hear some names. The Grinch, Billy Bob Thornton, Scrooge. Wait, wait, what did you say? Oh, you win. Hans Gruber. All right. Somebody said Scrooge. Oh, yes, Mr. Potter from Wonderful Life, yes. I was thinking Harry Potter when you said that. I I didn't read that book. Um, All right, fortunately, we don't have to come up with this on our own because the internet comes up with these lists for us. King Herod. That would be a good one, yes. All right, here are a few of them. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the villain and you tell me the, uh, the movie or whatever, or Christmas special. Scott Farkas. This Christmas story. All right, we're starting from like number 10 and working our way up. Uh, Hans Gruber was mentioned. What movie is that? Die Hard. Die Hard. Uh, Marv and Harry. Yeah. Home Alone. Home Alone. Uh, the Bumble. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The old claymation. Uh, that's going to be an illustration in a minute. Y'all may need to watch it real quick. Uh, the Angry Elf. <laughs> from Elf, thank you. Gremlins, from Gremlins. Uh, old Man Potter, Wonderful Life. Mr. Oogie Boogie. Somebody said it. Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, I didn't know that one. Y'all are good. Ebenezer Scrooge, Grinch. Uh, Santa? From Bad Santa. I don't encourage you to watch that. Um, and then a couple of honorable mentions that I just sort of enjoyed. Burger Meister Meister Burger. Santa Claus is coming to town. And then my favorite. And if you get this, we're going to give you a prize at the party tonight. I don't know what it is. The Martians. What in the world? <laughs> I don't know. We got to figure it out. Well, actually, you didn't get the name quite right, so I don't know. We'll talk to the judges. The, the technical name is Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Well, we'll give it to you. John says no. I, I, I think you should all try to watch that movie at some point. I have no idea what it is. We are in a series uh, that I've entitled Christmas Through the Eyes of the Apostle Paul. I know that's not very catchy, but that's that's the name of the series. So the question then I want to ask is, who would Paul say is the greatest Christmas villain of all time? Who would the Apostle Paul say is the greatest Christmas villain of all time? What do you think he would say? I think he would say, I am. Not, Not me, Justin. But, but I, the, I think Paul would say, I myself am the greatest Christmas villain of all time. Now, why in the world do I think that he would say that? We're going to have to read this to find out. So, First uh, Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, this is God's word. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we do pray now for uh, Your blessing to attend the preaching of the Word. Holy Spirit, would You come... Uh, and enable my words and enable our hearts that we might hear and believe. We ask it uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do I say that kind of off-the-wall thing? Why do I say the Apostle Paul would consider himself to be the, the worst Christmas villain of all time? Let me read you one other text to give you some background to what Paul just said about himself here in 1 Timothy. This is from Acts 26. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." Now, you see why Paul would call himself a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. Prior to his conversion, the Apostle Paul did everything in his power to wipe out, to destroy Christianity. If the Apostle Paul had had his way, there would be no Christmas celebration. If the Apostle Paul had had his way, we would not be celebrating Christmas here today. So you can understand then why Paul, even though he was a strict Jew, even though he was diligent about keeping the law, you could see why he considered himself the foremost or the chief of sinners. And perhaps he would have considered himself the greatest of Christmas villains uh, as well. But we do have Christianity. We do have Christmas, thankfully. Uh, Paul didn't stamp out Christianity. Why? Because of verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, like the Apostle Paul. He saved Paul. Verse 12 tells us that he appointed Paul to his service as one who would go on to spread the gospel and write much of the New Testament. So we can understand Paul's uh, praise here in verse 17. Jesus saved me? Of all people, Jesus saved me. Jesus is using me to go and spread the gospel. This is crazy. This would be like Osama bin Laden being converted to becoming an American and then going on a tour singing God Bless the USA in, in auditoriums all over the United States. This is an amazing transformation and change in Paul's life. So you can see why he would say to the king of the ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. Now, that's all interesting, but why should that matter to us? Why should that matter at us? I think it should matter to us because if, if we can get what Paul's getting at here, if we can feel a little bit about, uh, of what Paul's feeling here, then Christmas can become more for us than just a nostalgic, sentimental time of, of family and gifts 
and too much food. Uh, You won't have to go through the motions tonight as we gather for our uh, candlelight service. Uh, You won't always, you know, we'll be there saying, I always love Silent Night, and I love the candles, or I hate Away in the Manger. Why do we sing this every year? Just kind of our, just kind of normal Christmas stuff. I'm busy. I've got to go buy gifts. Oh, I know I've forgotten. This kid's not going to have as many. Did we get my mom anything? How can that be transformed? It can be transformed. Our Christmas can be changed into something glorious if we can put ourselves in the shoes of the Apostle Paul here. We have to be able to get what Paul got. I'm the chief of sinners, but Jesus came to save sinners. And he came to call me to his service. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. We're going to try to put ourselves uh, in Paul's shoes in the hopes that our, our Christmas might be transformed. So three points. Our sin, our Savior, and our calling. Our sin, our Savior, and our calling. First of all, our sin. Paul says in verse 15 that he is the foremost. Uh, some translations say he is the worst. Other translations say he is the chief of sinners. Uh, some people look at this and they say, ah, Paul's just exaggerating. He didn't, he didn't really feel that way about himself. Other people look at this statement and say, see this, this right here. This is the problem with Christianity. This, this morbid obsession with how bad people are. Why do you guys always have to be worried about talking about how bad people are? Uh, Tim Keller tells a story of reading a book review. I think it was in the New York Times several years ago. It was a book review of uh, St. Augustine's book, Confessions. Now, a little backstory to this. Uh, St. Augustine was one of the greatest theologians of the early church. He lived in the 3rd and 4th and centuries. Uh, his book, Confessions, is probably one of the best known spiritual autobiographies that we have. And in this book, Augustine tells a story of a time when he was a little boy and he and some other kids went into an apple orchard and they stole apples. And he's writing about this account as an adult and he's talking about how bad that was. And how bad and awful and sinful it was for them to go into this apple orchard and to steal these apples. Uh, The book reviewer read Confessions. He read Augustine say this. And then this is what he wrote about Augustine. The child of a dominant mother, victim of a guilt-ridden conscience, Augustine wrote the bewilderingly haunted confessions in which infantile peccadilloes like stealing apples and adolescent fumblings with instinctive sexuality are bewailed with all the anguish of a frustrated perfectionist. He was trapped between the humility of acknowledging his own dependence on God and the arrogance of insisting that everyone else was equally, equally tainted by sin and irredeemable but by his grace. What, what's that writer saying? The writer's saying, you guys like Paul and Augustine need to lighten up a little bit. So you stole some apples when you were a kid. Okay, all kids stole some apples when they were little. Get over it. Kids do that. Don't project your guilt and your low self-esteem on everybody else. Go see your therapist or something, but don't drag the rest of us into this. What was it that, that Paul had seen? What was it that Augustine had seen that led them to this sense of guilt over their own sin? Was it just some pathology that was present in each of their particular families? Or had they seen something that we all need to see? 
uh, in Confessions, Augustine goes on to, to talk about this incident of, incident of stealing the apples. And he said, When I willed to commit theft of the apples, I did so not because I was driven to it by any need. I stole a thing of which I had plenty of my own and of much better quality. In fact, they didn't even eat the apples. They wound up just throwing them at pigs and, and running off. He said, I did it because it was forbidden. I did it because it was forbidden. I loved my sin not for that which I did the sin, but I loved the sin itself. In other words, why did I do it? Did I do it to get something out of it? No, I didn't do it to get anything out of it. Did I need the apples? No, I didn't need the apples. Well, why did I do it then? I did it because mom told me not to do it. I did it because somebody told me not to do it. When mom says no, my heart says yes. When God says no, my heart says yes. Why? Because I, w- I want to be the king. I want to be the ruler. I don't want to have anybody in authority over me. Paul. Paul says that he was the chief of sinners. He says he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. And the Greek word uh, for insolent opponent here comes from the Greek word for pride. And it carries this idea of a trampler. Somebody who has a violent disregard for the rights of other people. Think about Paul. Paul had been outwardly a good guy. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, He kept the rules. He went to church. He got the stars in Sunday school. But underneath all of that exterior goodness was this desire to feel superior to everybody else. To trample over others. And that broke out when he started persecuting the early church. So think about these two guys. You have Augustine, who, if you knew him, would have been our sex, drugs, and rock and roll guy. And then we have Paul, who would have been your religious superstar, who persecuted the church and looked down on anybody who didn't measure up to him. Both of them, the good guy and the bad guy, both of them sinners. Both of them determined to be their own Lord and Savior. Both of them determined to do their own thing. And then God shows up, And he shows them who he is. And he shows them the full extent of their own sin. And y'all, what the scripture is driving us to see is that we've got the same spiritual DNA as Paul and Augustine. That there is no one good, no not one, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3. That sin may show up in Pharisaic legalism. It may show up in rank hedonism, but it's still there in every one of us. We all have this desire to go our own way and do our own thing, justifying ourselves the entire time. Uh, There's a scene in Mean Girls, and to justify myself, I haven't watched this. I just saw this clip, so don't give me a hard time, George Haddad. Um, but, But in this particular clip... All the girls are in the gym, and I guess it's the, the principal is up front, and, and something's happened. Uh, and she, she tells everybody to close their eyes, and then she says, raise your hand if another girl has ever said anything bad about you. And so every hand goes up. She tells them to open their eyes, and they all see that. And he says, close your eyes again. Raise your hand if you've ever said anything bad about another girl. Every hand goes up again. So open your eyes, look around. Everybody says something bad about another girl. So if there's this one girl who feels like, I don't really need to be here. This is not about me. This is not my particular problem. And so this girl standing up and the principal says, raise your hand if this girl's ever done anything mean to you. And everybody and the principal and all the teachers raise their hands. 
Um, we're all, we've all been sinned against. We're all sinners. Except we have this incredibly hard time seeing it in ourselves. It's hard to see in the same way. It's hard to see that like an old t-shirt you've had a long time, it's kind of become dingy white, but in your mind, that's white when you compare it to the other t-shirts until you get that new pack and you're like, oh my goodness, I've been wearing this brown t-shirt for 10 years that I thought, that I thought was white. Um, and then you see it. And then you see it. You know, when, when people in the Bible begin to see who God is and see themselves in light of that, their reaction is never, I'm pretty good. Their reaction is never, I just had weird parents and need a little therapy to get straight. Their answer, their reaction is always, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, it's, it's get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. It's, I'm the chief of sinners. Here's the thing, though. That's not bad for you to know that. That's not bad for you and your children to, to, to come to grasp that. It's actually good for you. Uh, imagine if you had a, a, something wrong with your leg. And you're determined, I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to pay a doctor's bill. So you begin to treat your leg at home with some homeopathic, I don't know, you rubbed olive oil on it, something. You looked it up on the internet and said, I'm going to do this and it's going to get well. And it never got well. And you finally go to the doctor and the doctor x-rays it and you find out you had a broken leg. Now, is that good news or bad news? Well, on one hand, I guess it's bad news that your leg is actually broken, but it's good news because it was broken the whole time and you refuse to acknowledge it, and now you can actually get help in making your leg well. Seeing our sin isn't bad for us because it enables us to see the truth about ourselves so that we can actually begin to say, what do I do about this? Where can I go and find wellness again? That brings us to our our second point, our Savior. Our Savior. Uh, why do we need to see something as morbid as our sin? We need to see it because Jesus didn't come to save good people. He didn't come to save people who think they have their acts together. The text tells us that he came into this world to save sinners. And if you want to experience salvation, you've got to figure out that... You're the sinner. And repent of all the ways that you've been trying to to save yourself even. But this is good news. That Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. Who is it good news for? It's good news for people like Uncle Billy from It's a Wonderful Life. You remember Uncle Billy was Jimmy Stewart's kind of screwed up uncle. And he was the one that lost the $8,000 that they owed to mean old Mr. Potter. Because he was always messing everything up the gospel is good news for screw-ups it's good news for spiritual screw-ups it's good news for sinners for prostitutes for addicts for gossips for bad parents for uncle billy's for me for you for the apostle paul paul saw himself as an example for other people who were sinners as well what, what do i mean by that Um, When Paul in Philippians 3 is talking about kind of his spiritual resume and how good he was, he lays all that out. Everything he had done, how often he'd been to church, all that. He lays all that out and he says, all that's rubbish. And the Greek word is something along the lines of dung. 
It's just, it's just a bunch of dung. It's just a bunch of manure. All of my good works are a bunch of dung. And so when Paul talks about his good works, he says they're junk. But then Paul here talks about his bad works, and he, set, he uses himself as an example. Here's all the bad things I've done, and let me be an example to you in this. What's he saying? He's saying, look, if God can save me, then surely He can save you. Don't think you are too bad. Don't think you are beyond the grace of God. If He can save me, He can save you. Verse 16, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. Your sin does not place you out of God's reach. It does not make you beyond saving. This, is, this, this text is good news for sinners. Jesus Christ. Why did He come? What's Christmas all about? Jesus came into the world, not just to set an example. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's good news. It can be bad news, though. It's bad news for those of us to, who refuse to acknowledge that we are sinners. Uh, it's bad news for the Pharisees. It's, it's, bad news, it's bad news for the elf on the shelf, right? Uh, you know the elf on the shelf who sits there and, and, and reports to Santa uh, and tells him all the bad stuff you've been doing. And let me read something from the, from the Babylon Bee for you. Uh, you guys know I enjoy this. Um, from the Babylon Bee, and it's about the elf on the shelf. He says, after sitting motionless as his host family held a devotional on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, local elf on the shelf Benny reportedly broke down Monday quietly sobbing as he repented of his life of Pharisaic legalism. (laughs) Oh, wretched elf that I am, Benny was overheard crying from his spot overlooking the family where he had previously judged each child's actions, keeping a legalistic record of good deeds and bad deeds. Having kept the law and pointed out the faults of others for so many years has done nothing to justify me before God. Only a broken and contrite spirit is what the Lord desires. He alone can justify. I realize that now. Benny said to no one in particular as he prepared to make his nightly flight back to the North Pole where he'd be expected to provide a detailed report of the good and bad things the children had done that day. But who am I to judge for I myself do the same things? As Benny began to understand that his list of good deeds would do nothing to justify him before the Father, he realized he could no longer go on as a professionally employed judge of others and reportedly began preparing a letter of resignation to tender to Santa Claus. Paul was the elf on the shelf, right? He was checking up on everybody else. But then he saw his own sin. He said, I am the chief of sinners. It's me. But Jesus came to save sinners. And that's good news for screw-ups like Uncle Billy. And that's even good news for the elf on the shelf and Pharisees like him if they see their sin and will repent of their self-righteousness and turn to Jesus Christ. This is also good news for Christians. It's good news for people who have been a Christian for a long time and you've started to figure out that you're still a sinner. Uh, you have seen that there are patterns of, your, of sin in your life that you thought these things were going to be gone a long time ago, but they still are there. You're still battling against them. 
This is, a good, this is good news for Christians who know that you have skeletons in your closets and they stick their head out every once in a while. This is good news for Christians who are depressed because you feel like that person in the pew next to you is so much better than you and has their act together so much more than you and does so much more for Jesus than I do and I can never be a really good Christian. This is good news for Christians because Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Uh, if you look at the Apostle Paul's life, it's interesting chronologically. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Well, maybe he'll grow out of that. Romans 7, wretched man that I am. 1 Timothy, later in his ministry, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. There was this growing awareness of sin in Paul's life. The longer he was a Christian, but he didn't despair because of that. He confessed that and rejoiced that Christ Jesus had came into the world to save sinners. Uh, the amazing Blondin was a tightrope walker. He used to walk across Niagara Falls. And the cool thing was that he would take you across too. And he would offer, he's like, get on my shoulders. And he would walk across the tightrope with you on his shoulders. He would put you in a wheelbarrow and push you across the tightrope across Niagara Falls. Uh, many of us, y'all, we hear the gospel that Jesus saves sinners. And we believe, yes, Jesus is going to take me across Niagara Falls. He's going to get me across the tightrope. He's going to get me to heaven. And I'm trusting in him completely. But then we get about halfway across and we feel like Jesus has dumped us out of the, out of the wheelbarrow onto the tightrope. And it's, us, it's up to us to make it the rest of the way on our own. But it's not. It's not. Jesus came to save sinners. From beginning to end. That's good news for Christians who are struggling with sin. It's also good news for us, for those of us who long for the day. Who long for the day when we won't have to struggle with sin any longer. Because there will be a day when we can look back and we'll see that we have been saved. And we are new and we are complete. And we are without sin. Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners, And so if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a sense in which you have been saved the moment you placed your faith in Jesus. There is a sense in which you are being saved. And there is a sense in which you will be saved in the future. And, and let, me, let, me, let me explain that a little bit. And all of that have been saved, are being saved, will be saved is sure and certain because of what Jesus Christ has done. Um, we got a swimming pool at our house, and every year um, I have to go out and I have to shock the pool. Uh, those of you who don't know what that means, it means you go to the swimming pool and you pour about 20 gallons of bleach into the swimming pool. And what happens is that bleach gets rid of all the organic contaminants in the water and clears it all up and, and makes it sparkly. But at the moment I pour that bleach into the pool, that pool has been shocked. It has been shocked. But there's also a sense in which, well, it hasn't done all the work of cleaning up the pool yet. So there's a sense in which that pool is being shocked. And those contaminants are, are slowly being done away with. And there's a sense when you get to the end where you can say it has been shocked. Because it's clear and there's nothing bad left in it. That's a picture, I think, of our salvation. We have been saved. We are being saved. 
although there is still sin sin in us, and one day we will have been saved. We will be spotless and clean because of what Jesus has done. Jesus saved you. He is saving you. He is cleaning you. And one day you will be totally clean and without sin. You know who does all that? Jesus does. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus does that. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Uh, Our sin, our Savior, and then I'm just going to say this quickly, our, our, our calling, I'm not going to elaborate. Jesus, if you're a believer, He has saved you from your sin and He has called you, He has appointed you to His service uh, right where you are. As a mom, as a dad, as a student, uh, in your occupations, He's appointed you to go and serve Him by loving God and loving your neighbor uh, the way He's particularly wired each one of you. So, we wrap up with this. Three things I want to say in closing. This is not, if you get this, my sin, my savior, my calling, this is not a formula for low self-esteem. This is a formula for biblical self-esteem. This tells you that you are more sinful than than you could ever imagine, but that at the same time you are more loved than you could ever dare hope. This is a formula that will help you move out into the world with boldness and with humbleness at the same time. I am a sinner. But I'm also loved and treasured by God. And so I can move out into the world with confidence. Secondly, this actually tells you how to share your faith. Uh, We've talked about sharing our faith over over Christmas. It's something believers struggle with. Paul is an example. He says, I'm an example of what God does. You and I are examples of what God does. Of God being patient and kind and merciful to sinners. See, as, let me encourage you, as you go out and try to share your faith, your job is not to go out and tell other people how much they need Jesus. Your job is to go out and to show other people, to tell other people how much you need Jesus. How much you need Jesus. Uh, Wes Simmons is a campus minister at, at Auburn University. I've read this before. I want to read a snippet again. He says, What if evangelism really is more about sharing than convincing? More about being vulnerable with our brokenness than being so quick to point it out in others. When you are willing in humility to first share with someone about your brokenness, your heart idols, and your own need for Jesus, they are much more likely to be drawn into a conversation than if you just start the conversation by asking them why they should be allowed into heaven one day. We want to give people space to put their guard down for a few minutes, not provoke them to put it up. We want to give them space to hear about Jesus. Uh, he says, assuming a prior relationship, if the person is a friend or coworker, you might say, I was wondering if it would be okay for us to meet for coffee sometime in the next week or two. I would like to tell you my story about why I need Jesus and why I think the gospel is surprisingly beautiful. He says, usually I share my own story, talking in appropriate ways about the idols of my heart and my struggles with sin. I talk about how the gospel of Jesus applies to those idols and what the calling to repent and believe the gospel looks like in my life. Eight out of ten times people end up at some point saying something to the effect of, You too? I thought I was the only one. They begin to share a bit about their own lives and even their own brokenness. They begin to reveal their own sin and need for Jesus, even though they might not understand it fully. They are opening up because you have given them an invitation. 
Now this is a, a pattern for our evangelism to show and tell other people how much we, this is why I need Jesus. Because I'm the chief of sinners. And then thirdly and finally, uh, if you take all this in, if you believe this, you get to really celebrate Christmas. You get to really celebrate Christmas. You get to be absolutely amazed. Uh, in, the, in the closing scene of, of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and you'll have to go watch this if you haven't seen it, but Bumble is the abominable snowman. All right? He's the, the villain. He's the Christmas villain in this movie. Uh, and Herbie the dentist, or whatever the dentist's name is, takes his teeth out, and Yukon Cornelius pushes the abominable snowman over the cliff, and you think they're gone forever. And then in the very last scene, Rudolph and everybody's all dancing around in Santa's workshop, and Yukon Cornelius comes dragging the bumble into the middle of the workshop. And everybody is terrified. Why in the world are you bringing the villain into the middle of Santa's workshop? And then the bumble stands up, and he takes the star that goes on top of the tree that none of the little Santa's little elves can reach, and he takes it and he puts it on top of the tree. The villain has been rescued, he's been redeemed, and he's been given a job to do that nobody else can do. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're, you're the bumble, you're the villain, I'm the bumble, I'm the villain, but I've been rescued by God's grace. I've been saved because Jesus came in the world to save villains, he came to save sinners. And he's appointed me to his service. And he's given me works to do that he's given nobody else to do. So go and do those. And celebrate God's grace to you at Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, I do pray that we would see, that we would be able to see both of these great truths. uh, That we are, uh, each one of us, the chief of sinners and our sin is great. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to love us, to appoint us to his service. Help us to believe this and to be amazed, uh, to be thankful, to celebrate, and to give you praise. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.